0: Welcome to today's Hendricks County conversation with Rick Myers and Gus Piercy. Gus, how are you doing today?
1: Fine as a puppy with two tails. All
0: right, all right. <laughs> this podcast is presented by Abstract Title and Hendricks Power Cooperative. And our guest today is Hendricks County Prosecutor, Lauren Delp. Good morning. I'm doing well, how are you? We're doing great, we're doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, we're excited to have you here. I know you're, you're still going through your first term. And um, you you replaced uh, someone who had been at the helm for quite a long time and Pat Baldwin. Mm -hmm. And uh, just wanted to to get a sense of of how things have been going for you, Lauren, and particularly through the pandemic, uh, and and what that's done to kind of change the way maybe your your team works. So fire away. Yeah. uh,
2: Well, uh, again, like I said, thanks for having me. You know, last year, and and even right now, there have been significant challenges that we have faced um, throughout the criminal justice system. You know, Some of those, most notably, is we had to cancel for a significant portion of last year all jury trials. Um, And so that kind of put us behind the eight ball. There were cases, some people don't know this, but cases, sometimes jury trials just have to happen. There are cases that just have to be tried for one reason or another. Um, and that happens every single year. And last year was no different. Um, we just couldn't get those done.
1: <clears throat>
2: and so um, currently we're, we're behind the eight ball a little bit. Um, and we know that. And, and we're looking for, uh, to meet that challenge and, um, this year and to try to double our efforts and, and get some of those cases wrapped up this year.
1: What kind of cases are we looking at that's been delayed the most is it the jury trials that you're worried about the most or is it procedural stuff well a little
2: bit of both um, the jury trials are, are the obvious ones but there has been in terms of processing the normal processing times um, a delay um, so we're looking to get that back up to pre-covid numbers in terms of disposition rates and how fast that we um, file a case to, to able to, to where we're able to dispose of it either through a plea agreement. Um, bench trial, jury trial. Um, so some of those processes have slowed down. But obviously, the jury trials are, are what's front and center because they take a lot of time, um, and they take a lot of in-court time. I mean, if you, talk, if you think about it, most jury trials average probably about three days. Um, and so if that's three days a month that that court um, can't hold regular cases, then um, that's, that's a significant amount of in-court time. Um, so if you're doubling that this year to try to catch up for last year, we're talking if we do two jury trials a month, <clears throat> that's six days a month that that court can't sort of process the normal cases um, to get done. So
1: what? Uh, so, OK, are we close to uh, hurting anybody's rights on any of that stuff, a quick and speedy trial thing and that? No, kind of there stuff?
2: there have been. Um, so currently there are a couple of fast and speedy trials that we have right now okay. uh, that we will do absolutely everything um, to process those and to get those cases done when a, when a defendant requests a fast and speedy trial from the moment he requests it we have to try that case within 70 days so there are two currently pending um, right now fast and speedy trials and one is set to go to trial on april 12th um, and there was another one that was just set in fact i stand corrected because that one just got continued so um, we only have one pending right now, but okay. none of the Supreme Court laid out a guidelines on how it is that they wanted us to go through this process, the Indiana Supreme Court. And the one thing that we couldn't do, obviously, is um, affect constitutional rights of defendants. And that included fast and speedy trial rights. That's the big one. Um, but everything else was kind of told, and that was within the power of the Indiana Supreme Court to do. Um, but. Fortunately, we didn't have a single defendant during the COVID time request a fast and speedy trial. Um, so we we didn't have that issue to deal with last year.
1: So well, what kind of cases uh, popped up most during, because there was a drop in crime last year during the COVID stuff, right? There
2: was, um, which, is, which is a good thing.
1: Because um, like DUIs, I assume that there are a lot of DUIs or you know, OWIs. that's our number one or number two in, right. in
2: terms of just sheer numbers of offenses. Yeah. Right. Um, those probably and dropped. cases. They did. Um, so DUIs dropped. We call them OWIs, but they dropped. Um, and that's a, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. And some people would say, well, wait a second, it dropped. Why is that a <laughs> <Yeah>. bad thing? <laughs> yeah. And and specifically those there, there are two things, um, two types of cases really that were dramatically affected last year in a bad way and the domestic violence cases which did drop but only dropped a um a percentage of what the overall case numbers dropped so they didn't drop as much as other cases and the actually the sexual assault cases actually went through the roof what kind so, of assault what kind of assault? sexual assault cases. oh sexual wow so <laughs> that includes child molests, rapes, things of that nature. Um, those increased by 74% last year during COVID. And domestic violence cases only decreased 11% when we saw an overall reduction of 27 to 29% last year in criminal case filings. And then why I say that it was sad is or something that's not as good as we would have liked to have seen it. Um, is because in the, especially in these types of cases, how these cases get reported most generally is that it comes through social interaction or at least a significant part of these cases get reported that way. Schools, churches, neighbors, you know, if you have somebody that's involved in that situation um, and a woman shows up and, and their friend doesn't see that something's just wrong, right? Or they see injuries and they question and they say, you know, Susie, why is it that I I, I just see what, how is it that you have this bruise on your face or why are you acting this way? And then that leads to a disclosure and then it leads to eventually a report. Well, when we were all socially isolating, those interactions didn't happen as frequently. And not only that, we were isolating lots of times with our abusers. Um, And so when we saw a reduction in the domestic violence cases of 11%, we really knew that many of those cases went underreported so that they are still happening. And there has been some national studies that would support this too, is that when it was, it was still happening, um, but they weren't being reported as much or as frequently as we normally would. Um, so not only did they were underreported, but there were likely even more instances than, than we had in, in 2019.
1: So the domestic uh, violence went down only 11 percent. Only
2: 11 percent when compared overall to, file, compared
1: to compared right to 27
2: to 29 percent of overall case filings. Right, um, especially misdemeanor case filings. So that includes your your OWIs, your simple thefts, those types of things. We saw a dramatic decrease um, in those cases, but domestics did not track those um, the level of decrease that we saw overall. Wow,
0: Lauren, what uh, you know when you came into this job. It, What was one thing that surprised you?
2: That's a good question. Um, You you worked
1: before. Yeah. You worked in the the department before, but you were trying cases. Right. You're probably not doing so much now.
2: I'm I'm certainly doing less than I was before. So I was a deputy prosecutor for uh, 13 years before I became the elected prosecutor. And my job before I became the elected prosecutor is I handled major felonies and and many of those major felonies that had to go to trial. So I was averaging four or five trials a year. Um, I am certainly not averaging that many um, since I've been elected. And on top of that, COVID kind of hampered that too. But um, I'm still trying cases. You know, I have one that's set to go to trial next month, the murder case, um, that that, uh, hopefully we can get that done next month. But the one thing I would say that surprised me the most is just the amount of administration that is required. I mean, I knew obviously that that was going to be a significant change for me, but not as much as I thought, as I currently have. Um, Because when you run an office of 43 people, we have 43 employees, 18 prosecutors. Um, It surprised me about the amount of time that it is dedicated to just running the office and not you know, sort of in the nuts and bolts of prosecuting cases. Yeah.
0: And I think that's probably pretty common when you move into an administrative role. You don't realize how much paperwork and all yeah. that kind of stuff is is At entailed time, with it you know. and the time-consuming and everything. So, yeah. um.
1: So, uh, give me an idea of... Give me an idea of the cases that uh, were put off. I understood that the... Like some counties didn't take as many people to jail in order to reduce COVID. I'm not sure that happened here. Were you aware of that? And they called them, they called it long forming, where they like give them a piece of paper, like a ticket that says, okay, you did have marijuana, Mm -hmm. but we can't put you in the jail because. Right.
2: Um, So the long, it's, it's, we don't use that vernacular here in Hendricks County, but it's basically summonsing people in rather than arresting them. Sure. and the sheriff did a great job at that. And you know, from the very onset, from the very onset of of COVID, we as department heads and elected officials within the law enforcement community got together and said, you know, how is it that we're going to treat these things? What what are we going to do? Um, and the sheriff, being in charge of the jail, um, had some major concerns about the population in the jail. And trying to get that down to a manageable number in the event that someone in the jail contracts COVID and then he didn't want it to spread um, all of those things. So there was very much a push to put it on the um, enforcement side, the guys that you see in the marked cars and driving around Mm -hmm. um, to when possible. Sometimes it's just not possible. But when possible, if you could defer to a summons versus um, an outright arrest. Um, that would both help the jail staff, it would help courts, those types of things. Um, and we kind of got together, and, and uh, when I say got together, there was streams of emails and stuff. We weren't all together and, you know, right. not socially distancing, right, right, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, we kind of, you know, did that, and, and and Brett or Sheriff Clark took the lead on that because he had some concerns about the jail. Um, but ultimately, I think we did a fantastic job as a law enforcement community in, in getting through this. I mean, we're still dealing with, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but we're still dealing with some of these effects. But last year, we did a really good job on um, sort of mitigating those, those um, types of things.
0: You're listening to Hendricks County Conversations with Rick Myers and Gus Piercy, uh, presented by Abstract and Title and Hendricks Power Cooperative. Our guest today is... Hendricks County Prosecutor Lauren Delp. Lauren, you you mentioned um, the, the sheriff there a minute ago, and 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 we all know that that success takes teamwork. Kind of explain how, and I've always felt this, just as an outsider, that that the law enforcement community here in Hendricks County really works together. Could you elaborate on how that what that relationship is like? Oh yeah, uh,
2: I mean, and that's that's very true. Um, <laughs> You know, we we are starting to, and and you know, COVID kind of puts a damper on a lot of things. But um, every quarter, law enforcement, the department heads, chief, we all the chiefs, we call got a chiefs meeting. So all the chiefs of all the law enforcement agencies, the sheriff, myself, and their deputy chiefs get together to talk about and discuss those issues um, that are affecting the county. Um, because there is a lot of, and it's necessary. There's a lot of coordination that needs to take place in order to get the best outcomes that we can. You know, the example that I like to use is just because a guy is dealing drugs in Plainfield does not mean that he's not going to cross over and deal drugs in Avon or Brownsburg or Danville or even further out west. And so we have to keep in communication with one another to to address those issues because it is a dynamic situation. Law enforcement um, is a dynamic. We have to adjust to situations on the ground um, and be a little more nimble um, to address those concerns. Um, but we are in constant contact with one another um, to see if we can't help one another out and those types of things.
1: Any any uh, results from COVID that you think will kind of stick around in the future? I mean, you guys are already yeah. doing the tele. You were doing the tele court cases, right? right. Where Defendants appeared first in a over a television, right, mm-hmm. over a video feed, right. And that
2: was, you know, it's kind of routine now. But Hendricks County, this was even before I. Uh, became a deputy prosecutor um, how many
1: years ago 13
2: well not 13 anymore so it's 15 now 15 years yeah so even before i became a deputy prosecutor um Hendricks county was one of the if not the first county to start doing initial hearings via video link so why that was important was is that the jail wouldn't have to transport defendants over um, for the judge to advise them of their rights give them the court dates and all of those things we did all of that remotely where there was a Um, closed circuit camera at the jail and then each court had their own link to it and a camera in their own courtroom and so they could see the judge the judge could see the defendant they could advise them of what the charges that they're facing Um, but we've been doing that for a long time so for at at some level this was not a new process to us Um, now the broad expansion of being able to do hearings and sometimes even contested hearings via video that was certainly new Um, that is not something indiana has ever thought about supporting um, and I, I think the current makeup of the Indiana Supreme Court who kind of determines how specifically that issue cameras in the courtroom um, and videotaping hearings and that type of thing um, I don't think that there's the makeup to really full you know dive into fully the video you know type of hearings just right, yet right but do I think that some hearings they're going to broaden it a little bit? Yeah likely. Uh, just because of the usefulness of it, it, it does save a lot of time for both attorneys and, and judges, um, even defendants, you know, if they if it's if it's just some routine hearing, um, you know, them being able to appear, you know, take a 15 minute break from their job, go to their car, have it on their phone, you know, and then have this right. sort of, you know, you know, whether it's a pretrial conference or some other hearing, um, how much beneficial that is to, to a lot of the different parties in um, I think that those are likely here to stay, that ability. Now, whether or not individual courts um, are going to do that would be a different question, but I think that they're going to allow for it, the Indiana Supreme Court's going to allow for it, so.
1: So, okay, so now now we get to the tough questions. Oh. Um, yeah, the Woo! rest of it's been okay. I mean, <laughs> the rest of it's been easy. I, I wanna, I, okay, so you're an elected prosecutor. What is your philosophy? when it comes to prosecution? Because, you know, there's all these types of philosophy, like the broken window philosophy, where you clamp down on some of the minor crimes to keep the major ones from happening, right? Right. Uh, What's your philosophy? So I'm an aggressive prosecutor,
2: um, you know, and that's not to say that I don't believe in second chances, because I do. Um, But there are a few cases. When I took office, I wanted to identify those cases that um, I thought that we could do better on and primarily those were major felonies and specifically of those major felonies um, habitual offenders it seemed to me like it was a no-brainer that if we had somebody who committed a major felony um, who was also a habitual felon which means that they have at least two possibly three um, prior felonies that those are the cases that we should make a priority and sort of be aggressive on those cases so that's kind of the philosophy that when i took office that that was sort of step one step two is that and this this may be a little unusual coming from a prosecutor is um, i believe in second chances and not everybody that um, gets charged with a crime needs to go to jail in fact the research would show that on specific individuals um, it's actually counterproductive to public safety um, to send those people to jail that meaning they're more likely to recidivate when they come out of jail than if we were to do some other treatment for them.
1: And this means they're more likely to commit again and- Yes. And <laughs> it's a school for them, right? On, yes. on how to get better at what they were doing when they got thrown in, right? Yeah, absolutely, and
2: and DOC does not, um, I, I don't mean to for this to sound negative on DOC, but DOC does not provide the resources for them, um, and it's difficult for them. Um, to it's sort a of, money thing, right? Yeah, it's a money. Sure, thing. it's always sure. a resource thing. You know, right. it's always about resources, um, but it does doesn't provide them with the the certain training and education and and just being confined and those types of things to allow them to get the tools that are needed so that they can conform their behavior to the dictates of the law, and. So some of these, you know, I'm a big believer in drug court. I was a founding member of drug court way back in the day. It's, you know, and and explain drug court. So drug court is a um, special program that's run by Judge Smith in Superior Court Four. And probably ten or twelve years ago, or not twelve, but ten years ago, uh, he approached me and a fellow deputy prosecutor um, because he had an interest in this, and he said, "Why don't you put together some um, plan?" on how it is that we can do this if we can do this so we did it Um, but drug court is basically a last stop for those people who are addicted before they go to the indiana department of corrections so these are people that have prior criminal history that are deep within their addiction and they have what we call is high needs they're high needs and high risk Um, so what they do is it's a two-year program that they meet with the judge every single week they get tested drug tested multiple randomly multiple times a week um, and they go through a series of phases and the ultimate conclusion is is that one we are going to provide them with those resources that they need all those wraparound services that they get help with um, trying to get employment they get help with obviously their substance abuse they get help with families those types of things um, that are those triggers for addicts to recidivate and commit new crimes um, and they get help with all of those things. But it's a two-year intensive program, and it's not easy. You know, but Does it
1: operate under those special court deals that the state set up? Yeah, it is a problem-solving court. A problem-solving um, court, yeah. Yeah,
2: so, I mean, it's, it's probably the most popular problem-solving court, but um, there are others. There, there's veterans court, family court, those types of things. But um, it's intensive. If we had the resources, you, you mentioned earlier talking about resources. If, if we had the resources, this is what I would like for all of probation um, cases to look like. It's just there's just no way, you know? I mean, right. there's the maximum amount of, of participants that can get into this court, into this program, is 30 at any given time. And just we because fa- of
1: resources? Yeah,
2: th- I mean, so a judge has to dedicate once a week, he, de- he dedicates an entire afternoon just for these 30 cases. That's an incredible amount of time. And that doesn't right. include all the other staffings and probations and prosecutors that meet on these cases. Um, it is a very intensive process
1: and is it is it still a problem i mean is is drug use still a major issue i mean it's I, not it's, a
2: major issue it's the major issue okay, so my,
1: heroin's kind of gone away meth come back, or well, where are we with this
2: I would say yes and yes <laughs> um, so you know this is my this is my Sort of soapbox issue is in 2019 in Hendricks County we had 29 overdose fatalities. Um, in 2020 that increased by
1: 74%. Wow.
2: That is one overdose fatality every week in Hendricks County. I'm not talking about overdose overdoses and they survive. I'm talking about overdoses fatality. fatality. So one Hendricks County resident died every year or every week last year.
1: Yeah.
0: You're listening to Hendricks County Conversations with Rick Myers and Gus Piercy, uh, presented by Abstract and Title and Hendricks Power Cooperative. And our guest today is uh, Hendricks County Prosecutor Lauren Delp. Lauren, I want to go back to you. You talked about you, you have an aggressive uh, style as a prosecutor. Do you, are, are you aggressive with juvenile cases? How do you treat that? Well, it's on a case-by-case basis. Um, you know, one of the sad
2: sort of um realities that I have seen over the last 15 years of my career is we may not be seeing an increase of major types of crimes and we haven't we've seen it sort of um, have it's right around 125 major felonies a year but the issue is is that those types of crimes are becoming more violent and the people who offend those crimes are becoming younger and younger so where we saw you know someone in their early 20s or mid 20s committing some of these armed robberies now we are seeing 17 year olds 16 year olds um, 18 and 19 year olds um, committing these types of offenses and that's incredibly disturbing um, but some of these cases are incredibly violent and um, you know there's a procedure for that um, but again it's all reviewed on a case-by-case basis and, you know sometimes Um, these juveniles will get um, what's called a direct file and most of the times when they are those violent cases we will direct file on those um, because it's just a case that's really bad Um, other times we don't you know um, when there's a discretionary waiver situation so um, juveniles are you know one of those things that sadly we're we're trying to track and keep an eye on um, because we are seeing a lot of kids Um, commit some, some really, really bad crimes. Um, and some of those kids, I I mean, I, I, I will point out the fact that most, I don't have a percentage for you, so I don't know if I can say most, but, um, many, many of those kids are kids coming from Marion County and committing the crimes out here in Hendricks County. Um, especially the armed robberies. That's one I've kind of kept an eye on because we're having a lot of pharmacy robberies, especially along 36, um, that are committed by younger and younger people. So, um, and they're mostly from Marion County.
1: Wow, yeah. that does happen. Uh, I, I, being a donut county like that, that's got to be a, a, a pretty big deal. Um, and uh, so, what? Uh, so, what is the drug of choice these days that you're worried about most? Well, uh, you talked about it a little
2: bit earlier, but we are seeing an uptick in meth cases. Um, but what I like to remind people is that meth, is a, it's a slow death. When you get addicted to meth, it will eventually kill you, but it will kill you in 10 or 15 years, and it's not a pretty process. But what we are still seeing is heroin and fentanyl and opioid derivatives. That is killing people, and it's killing people today. So of those deaths that I cited earlier, the vast majority of them 60 70 percent i forget the actual number are opioid related fatalities um, many of those um, there's a, a multi-use kind of situation happening on but there's always fentanyl on board or heroin or some other opioid on board that's really killing them the meth it, it, the, the number of in case the number of cases are increasing for sure but what's killing people is still fentanyl and opioids so we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can combat both of these issues. Neither one of them is um, neither one of them is um, something that we cannot you know address. Um, but it, it is I, I don't want the people to think that we're just all of a sudden flipping a switch and just going after meth cases now because there is still a substantial need to enforce um, and to look at the, the opioid crisis. We're still in the midst of it.
1: Wow, I mean that disturbing i mean i i I think everybody thought that we were still in the midst of it but yeah
2: well i I put i put out last year i put out a a facebook post you know from the office and and i talked about the epidemic within the pandemic and the epidemic of we were using before we even knew what covid 19 was is that there was an opioid epidemic yeah and that has not gone away um Mm -hmm. in fact you know last year the statistics would show that that it has only increased because I think a lot of this social isolation and the negative consequences as a result of social isolation, that's not good for an addict. You know, it's not good for an addict to not be able to receive their treatment, to not be in those social support groups. Um, and so there, there was a negative impact on that side, which is why, I kinda saw, why we kind of saw, in my opinion, um, an increase in the OD, in the OD fatalities.
1: How has the prosecutor's office changed over the last 15 years? Just in your time that you've been there, you mentioned that you've got 43 employees now. Yes. Well, was it 15 years ago? And I assume that's based on population, or obviously population crime. growth, complexity
2: of cases, sure. number of cases. Um, but it's completely different. When I, you know, was a, a bright-eyed, just graduated from law school, and, and Pat took a risk on this kid from you know, that grew up in Southern California. Um, I walked into an office where there was only eight, there was just eight of us deputy prosecutors. Wow. Um, And we were in, you know, at the time, we were in the courthouse and we were stacked deep. You know, I shared an office, at one point I shared an office, not very much bigger than this room, that with two other deputy prosecutors, and that had some challenges to be sure. If you're on the phone and, you know, it's, you know, you got two other people that are on the phone, um but we did through it i mean, I mean it, so the county has grown our office has grown for sure as as the needs have grown um but it is a completely different look you know we're no longer in the courthouse we got we got kicked out of there because they expanded <laughs> yeah. two extra courts um how superior many court. courts are there now so there are six five superior courts and circuit court okay um but in 2007 um, we added the two most recent courts um superior court four and superior court five and so they needed room. And so low man on the totem pole gets kicked out. And so that was us. Right. And so we moved across the street. And it's funny that you talk about the things that have changed because I get some prosecutors that weren't around in those days start complaining about space and not having, you know, this and that. And I said, hey, look, it. <laughs> if you're not sharing an office with two other deputy prosecutors, then you're doing pretty
1: good. Right. And you walk to school. Yeah, up miles, hills both right. ways. <laughs> doggone right we did. <laughs> right yeah. Uh, yeah well it's just interesting i mean it's not necessary it's a population thing more than anything right i mean it's not necessar- oh yeah there's more crime obviously mm-hmm. to take care of but it's still a population thing you're going to have so much crime per the population
2: yeah uh, you know and, and all of that is dependent on on the type of population that is and um, those types of things but yeah i mean overall because of the dramatic growth over the last 15 years of hendricks county I mean, I don't think we've got the, the 2020 data or population statistics from the census yet. But, right. um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. And I'm kind of telling people, like, we're going to be over 180,000. You know, I mean, we're going to be we're already a top 10 county um, and we're going to be move up a, a couple of rungs, I think, um, probably to, to number seven. What do you um, think
1: it'll be more courts? I mean, I know that's a, do you know how that, what, is that some sort of formula through the Supreme
2: Court? Yeah, so the Supreme Court has a formula in terms of how many, so each court and each types of case has a, a signed number. So if it's, if it's a small claims case, it gets assigned a specific weight. Um, and so they tried to average if it's a level one felony, which is the highest level other than murder. Right. So that gets a bigger number. You know because it takes a lot more time in court time to deal with those more significant cases than like a small claims case and so they have that scale and when the numbers start to get out of whack um, then they start looking at added uh, adding courts and we do i I should mention we do have two magistrates as well so we have six courts but eight judges
1: okay so how much time do you think is spent in a in a in a court i mean how much time is there court cases actually being tried being and tried, it, yeah, like eight hours a day, twelve hours a day. Is there is there night court? <laughs> you no. know, I mean, how 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 is that going to change? Um, you know, I well, I, I
2: don't know exactly how how it's going to change in in terms of COVID nineteen. Is that what you're asking yeah, about? Yeah, I, I
1: guess as, as as we increase in time, because I'm assuming then you're going to say pretty soon that you need more deputy prosecutors to handle the large. right i I
2: mean we are we're we're doing pretty well right now but i mean i'm not a fool i mean that will be on the horizon eventually as we grow um you know there's going to be needs that are going to need to be addressed and and you know there's a certain threshold if we had resources unlimited amount of resources then you could virtually eliminate crime but that's because you're going to have a cop in front of every house and that's just not reality um and so it's really talking about compromising how much can you deal to meet the needs and and so with increased needs you're going to need additional prosecutors going to need additional courts Um, but i I would think that in the next few years what i mean by that is four or five years that you'll you will find a need um, for an additional court um, just because of the population growth and the types of cases that we have Um, so hopefully that answers your question
1: yep
0: you're listening to hendricks county conversations with rick myers and gus piercy presented by Abstract and Title and Hendricks Power Cooperative. Our guest today is Hendricks County Prosecutor Lauren Delp. Lauren, uh, as we wrap this up today, and we appreciate you uh, being with us, and and uh, you've done just, at least in our eyes, a, a fantastic job uh, as prosecutor. I'm going to give you an opportunity for open mic. Is there something that we've not asked you uh, today that's on your mind that you think folks listening would uh, would like to know yeah you know it, it really you know my heart
2: um and thank you very much for this opportunity one of the things i um trying to instill is um better community involvement you know when i ran for prosecutor there were times where i would ask people if they knew what the prosecutor did and they they kind of knew it was law enforcement related but they didn't really know you know what a prosecutor did and so part of my job i think is getting out into the community doing things such as this to inform them of what 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 we do on their behalf because it's really about serving them um but the thing that i would say that i'm most passionate about and what i 15 years ago when i began my career it seemed like these cases would just jump out at me and i would take an an special uh, special interest in, in these types of cases and that's victims cases and currently when we see um sexual assault cases and that includes child molest cases um, jump up 74 percent um that's incredibly traumatic you know that's that's that is a bad statistic Um, and so those are the types of cases to me and they're the most difficult cases to be sure i mean when when you're dealing with a, a victim that's six or seven or eight years old and just the complexity that's going of this type of case and and you know, it's just not enough for a six, seven or eight year old, um, to manage. And, um, those are the types of cases that I want, you know, the public to know that we are prioritizing. Um, you know, I ran on a family values platform. It's something i firmly believe in. I still instill it in policies and practices in, in my office. Um, because these are, these are crimes that affect the family. I mean, most obviously, um but those types of cases where um, we have you know crimes that are committed within the family unit are the ones that um, i'm most passionate about and they're the ones especially crimes against children um, that we just can't let our foot off the gas and we 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 really need to um just target those cases because i think they have just a tremendous impact on our community and for those for those little victims themselves so
0: Very well, Lauren. Well, again, thanks for joining us today, and uh, hope to have you back again someday soon. Well,
2: anytime. Thank you very much, Gus and Rick. I greatly appreciate you and all the things that you do.
0: Very good. Thank you.
2: Thank you.